Good morning, Jubilee Church. My name is Greg Nelson. I'm one of the elders here in the city location, and it's my pleasure to greet you this morning with the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you've been a longtime member of our church or you're just recently joining us through our online services, today we're starting a new series called Behind Enemy Lines, The Story of Daniel. Have you ever wondered how to authentically live out your Christian faith amidst the pluralistic and relativistic culture? The claims of the Christian faith are becoming more and more foreign, more peculiar, more controversial to the culture around us. What is a genuine believer to do? Do we lament the lost position of Christian values in our culture? Do we abandon these outdated and some marginalized uh, views that we hold? Is this the end of Christianity as we know it? Or does God have something more for his church? Believe it or not, this American experience is not the first time that God's church has been in a position lacking political power or, or in diminished cultural influence. The power of the gospel is not dependent on the popularity of the message or the street cred of the preacher. In the book of Daniel, God has preserved for us a record of how his covenant people have responded in a similar situation. Disenfranchised and displaced, without political power, lacking in influence amidst a hostile culture. They remain faithful to live exemplary lives, radically different from the culture around them. In so doing, they provide a compelling witness to God. They exercise their prophetic voice and they leave an indelible mark on the society from within. By considering the challenges they faced, the values that they held, the decisions that they made and the God that they serve. I believe we're going to find renewed vision for the life that God has called us into and for his mission. So let's pray before we dive in. Father, we acknowledge that you are a God of sovereign power and wisdom. Your word declares that you and you alone have appointed the seasons, both in nature and in history. We're reminded that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that you have prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Thank you for, your great, for this great honor, the honor it is to know you, to become your children, and to join you in the advance of your kingdom. Would you bless us once again with your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts from your Holy Scriptures that we might be changed into the likeness of your Son for your glory and for our good. Amen. As we consider the opening lines of the book of Daniel, it's helpful to orient ourselves. This book is a record of an ancient Hebrew who lived around 597 BC. We meet him as a teenager, likely between the ages of 13 and 17, just as the Babylonian army has invaded Jerusalem and carried off the royal family and many of the leading nobles. The reason for this? Well, if you want to subjugate a people, you strip them of their distinctiveness. Take away their kings, their laws, their worship, all the reminders that they are different. When they come to believe that they're just like everyone else, they will fall in line. Once there is nothing to remind them that they are special, they'll become a lot easier to control and eventually to assimilate. This kidnapping bit, it was quite a brilliant move one that was replicated by many conquering kings in the ancient world. You take their best, the brightest, you teach them your language, your culture, dress them in your clothing and give them roles in your government. 
Then when the younger generation starts to look for role models, what do they see? They see their own people serving you, the Babylonian king. Now, let's consider this from Daniel's perspective. King Nebuchadnezzar invades your hometown. He spares no one, really. Soldiers, women, children, the elderly, all fall in the streets. The city is burned to the ground. Imagine all those great cinematic battle scenes. Braveheart, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, Infinity War. Except this time, you're on the losing side. The conquering Babylonians enslave anyone who's left standing. Yet, after a grueling march back to Babylon, you're treated well. Starving, you're fed delicacies. Shivering, you're clothed in warm clothing. You're immersed in all the finest things. You start to ask yourself why. So that you will become loyal to the king of Babylon. Sounds pretty tempting, doesn't it? Then Nebuchadnezzar attempts to convert the Hebrew captives through re-education. Verse 5 tells us that Daniel and his friends are selected for an all-expenses-paid education. Sounds great right now in the midst of a college uh, funding bubble. This ain't a community college experience. This is the Babylonian Ivy League. That's the reception that Daniel and his friends received. Sounds like an effective campaign to win hearts and minds to me. But then... Nebuchadnezzar takes it a step further. He goes so far as to rename them. What's that all about? Well, there are many biblical examples of renaming. Generally, the moment marks a a critical turning point, an important shift in the, the destiny of the subject who's renamed. Abram becomes Abraham when he receives the promises of God. Jacob becomes Israel after wrestling with God and prevailing. Simon becomes Peter when he is commissioned by Jesus to lead the church. Changing a name is a a display of authority, a way to exercise power, even to show ownership over someone. And in this instance, it's an act of assimilation. Bringing these Israelite youths into the Babylonian fold. Let's look at the meanings of the original Hebrew names and their competing Babylonian names. Here you can see Daniel means Yahweh is my judge. Daniel is accountable to God alone. But Belteshazzar means protect the king. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. Look how good God is. Shadrach means I am fearful of God. God is angry, dangerous, distant. Mishael, who can compare to Yahweh? No one. What confidence. Meshach, I am humiliated. Azariah, Yahweh has helped, a present help in time of need. Abednego, the servant of Nebo, the Babylonian god. What do all these name changes have in common? They remove the emphasis on the Hebrew distinctiveness and the Hebrew God, the one true God, and they replace it with some statement to undermine these young men and their Hebrew identity. A new allegiance God is distant, robbed of confidence, and worshiping pagan gods. As you can see, being a captive in Babylon involved immersion in alternative facts, uh, the Babylonian worldview. 
Not only were these Hebrew youths taught the language and culture, they were given new Babylonian identities. Their entire world had changed. Now you can imagine how easy it might be to forget your uh, culture and the values of your forefathers, disconnected from the rich history of God's faithfulness to the Hebrew people. You're now immersed in the riches and the power of the crown. Literally nothing in your day-to-day experience is left to remind you of who you once were. But instead, everything is designed to reinforce these new messages of Babylon. Now, honestly, our experience today in 2020 has a lot of similarities to this situation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your true identity is that of God's child, and your values are the values of heaven. Yet you and I are living much like these Hebrew captives, behind enemy lines. The book of Ephesians tells us that the world that we're living in is in rebellion against the one true God. And in fact, the earth has become, if temporarily, the domain of Satan. God's adversary, described as the prince of the power of the air, and he would be quite happy to see you and to see me forget our true identity and assimilate a counterfeit one instead. Unfortunately, many of us have received an identity from our past that that echoes in our minds, telling us who we are or who we should be. Sorry about your dad, man. Uh, Looks like you're the man of the house now. Man, why you talk so white? Get back to where you came from. You're not as quick as you look. Are Are you sure you're really black? A B in English? Is that the best you can do? I know you're smarter than that. I can't believe I wasted so much time. Oh, I totally ruined it. I don't know what words have shaped you in your past. But each of these statements represents some expectation that someone placed on me. Some of them came from outside and some came from within. But either way, what we believe about ourselves eventually defines us, often boxing us in and hindering God's work in our lives. We become imprisoned to false identities. Some would say the solution is to throw off the shackles and look within, discover who you truly are. On that note, every media outlet that you encounter is filled with identity promises. Buy this car, this clothing, this makeup, you name it. Become who you really want to be. Just do you. Speak your truth. Underlying all the hype, all the the self-improvement, self-empowerment, and makeover reality TV is the allure that we can create our own identity, that we can shape our own reality. Sure, we can achieve a great deal with our money and our time and our, our talents, but only God can reveal who you really are and who you were created to be. Just like in the Garden of Eden, we have come to believe that throwing off God's rule and God's reign will allow us to recreate ourselves. But instead, we end up destroying ourselves. In the void left by God's infinite wisdom, we have fallen into self-indulgence and self-absorption. But our desires are, are disordered, harmful, misguided, We chase the things that we think will fill us and make us happy, but we end up finding that we're more empty than we've ever been. 
No, the answer is not be true to yourself. But as Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So what do we do with all this? Let's look at how Daniel and his friends responded. Did they wallow in the pain of losing everything that they knew about their old life? Or did they embrace the new comforts of their Babylonian exile? Did they angrily resist looking for their chance to uh, incite revolution? Or did they just submit to the overwhelming power, wealth, and influence of their Babylonian captors? No. They actually forge an altogether different path. They learn to live in the tension. The text tells us that Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself with Babylonian customs. Instead, he begins a a lifelong pursuit of staying true to his Hebrew roots and to his Hebrew God. Certainly, he doesn't have very much control over the situation that he's in. He probably has little uh, ability to change his circumstances. But he does fight. He fights a battle in his mind and in his heart, not with chariots, but with God's word and with God's remembrance. Although he has a Babylonian name, he continues to be known as Daniel throughout the book. He subsequently serves as an advisor to successive kings of Babylon, but always under this name. He never truly surrenders his original identity, his, his identity as a man accountable to God. Yahweh is my judge. For many Christ followers, we have been so inundated with the identities of the culture around us. We don't even realize there is a battle to fight here. We have assimilated the identities handed down from our parents, uh, our birth order, our, our ethnic group in our Enneagrams. And we believe these truths to be self-evident, so much so that when we read God's word and it says that something else is true of us, we question God like Nicodemus. We look God in the face and we say, how can these things be? In this way, the lies that we believe about ourselves sabotage the work of God because his word is not combined with faith. So how do we avoid this trap? Here are three steps that we can take to win the battle for our hearts. Embrace your God-given identity. Address your earthly identities and fight the battle with friends. First, embrace your heavenly identity. The book of Revelation tells us that all those who have received forgiveness through Jesus Christ have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Our names are on Jesus' roster. That should give us great confidence and joy as we encounter the life that God is leading us in. But here's what's not written in there. Your ethnicity, your zip code, your education, your salary, your hobbies, your voting record, your body type, your illness, your disability, your divorce, your bankruptcy, your sexual history, or your rap sheet. Here's what it does say. Megan, forgiven. Danny, cleansed. 
Mary, beloved. Adolfo, redeemed. Jamie, child of God. Paul, co-heir with Christ. Tiffany, sealed. David, spirit, baptized. Katie, regenerated. Mitch, sanctified. Emmanuela, glorified. Michael, more than a conqueror. You are not first a, a boomer, a Gen Xer, or a millennial. You're not foremost a Republican or a Democrat, black, brown, or white. You're not primarily a professional or a laborer, a Midwesterner or a Southerner. God has more for you than labels, tall, fat, skinny, short, introvert, extrovert, health nut, alcoholic, successful, or failure, ambitious or lazy, rich or poor. These words may describe you, but they do not define you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. God is delighted to give you a new name, his family name. And there is no earthly identity that can compare to the glorious inheritance that God has for us and the destiny that we share in Jesus Christ. Like Paul, I pray this for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Second, we must address our old identities. Now, as we grab a hold of our God-given identity, what do we do with the old? It's clear that I belong to a number of identifiable groups. I'm a husband, a father, a brother, a medical professional, an African-American, the son of an immigrant. I take joy in my hometown, my sports teams, and even my hobbies. Am I supposed to pretend that these other identities don't even exist? No. Rather, we should understand who we are in Christ and make that the foundation. But like the Babylonian names that given to Daniel and his friends, many of the identities that we carry from our past, they, they can take our attention off of God and put them on ourselves or onto something that the world values. To combat this, we must allow our God-given identity to continually shape and mold our other identities. We make those old identities subordinate to God's word. How does that work? So for example, do I approach my marriage like the world does, like a transaction? What can I get out of it? Or like God does, like a covenant, what can I put in? Is my parenting goal to be my child's best friend or to teach them Christian faithfulness? Does my race define me more than my faith? Am I more invested in my fitness or my faithfulness? Do I boast in my career or in the cross of Jesus Christ? All of these things are a part of who I am, but they are all identities that will pass away. My wife could die and then I would no longer be married. My children might disown me. And what kind of parent would I be then? Eventually my hands will shake and I'll have to put down the knife. My vision will blur, my body will fail, and it will go into the ground. But this truth will never change, that I am a child of God, an heir of Christ, a citizen of heaven. So when you find yourself bombarded with thoughts of your old identities, slay them. Did you know that when Jesus returns to the earth, it says that he will lead an army but he won't need an army. 
He will lead an army, but he won't need an army. It says that out of his mouth will come a sharp sword and he will use it to vanquish his enemies. The army, they don't even work. They don't even fight. They're there as spectators. We too can speak the word of God, that which comes out of his mouth and has power. And we can use it to vanquish our enemies, Satan, sin, and the world. Let's wield the sword of truth by speaking to our old ways of thinking. For instance, do you ever feel like nobody loves me? We'll see what the word says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Do you ever experience feelings of worthlessness? This is what God says to you. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. How about, I've screwed up so much, I deserve this trouble in my life. You were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, has made us alive together with Christ. Afraid you'll never get over some sin? It's just who you are. By no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? We were buried with him by baptism so that we could walk in newness of life. I'm proud to be an American. Well, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of yourself as a a self-made man. Is that where your pride is? See what the scripture says. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. In the end, there is no reason for us to wallow or to boast in ourselves, because in God's family, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The word of God, when combined with faith, will tear down the idols in our lives and make room for God's word to stand. And third, let's fight the battle with friends. Daniel lived an exemplary life. In more than one place, it states that he was known as a man of excellent character. In the midst of intense pressure, he was a witness to God, to God's preeminence above all other gods. So much so that two separate pagan kings praise and worship Yahweh. But Daniel did not achieve this on on his own. The scripture tells us that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were right there with him. They were fighting together to win this battle over their identity and stay true to God in a culture of opposition. So don't fight this battle alone. And don't assume that you're a good judge of where you need to fight the battle. Get input from trusted friends, other believers who are walking closely with Christ. We need each other to encourage and and challenge each other. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's that human connection is precious, especially our shared unity in the Father. I know we say it all the time, but really we can't say it enough. Pursue community. We may be taking a break from uh, organized in-person gatherings, but we're not taking a break from growing as disciples of Jesus Christ together. 
Call, text, Zoom, FaceTime, or dare I say it, get together with a friend. Uh, Breathe a sigh of relief. Reminisce. Share your best hashtag COVID cooking moments. But whatever you do, ask for help. Ask a friend to pray for you, to look into your life, to read you like a book and help you be shaped by God and by God's truth, not by the world. Don't settle for any core identity that is not built on the truth of who God is, what he has said, or what he has done. Everything else is sinking sand.